This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Marie Wiles, superintendent of the Gilderland Schools. She has just published her first book, On Lessons to be Learned from Shakespeare, a line from Hamlet, a father's advice to his son, to thine own self be true, has been her guiding principle as a human being, she said. She thought that others, particularly school leaders like herself, could be guided by the bard as well. made you decide late in an academic career that has been very successful to launch into something like writing a book? Well, it was 100% unintentional. I'll start with that. Um, I'll I'll just tell briefly the story of how this came about. I'm a member of the New York State Council of School Superintendents. And about two years ago now, um, the conference organizer reached out to me and said, we're looking for a couple superintendents who would be willing to give a 10 minute talk on our Monday morning opening session. Would you be willing to do it? So I said, sure. Uh, Saying no is not one of my strong suits. And I said, well, what's my topic? And they said, well, social emotional wellness. And this was right after the pandemic. We were sort of in that odd first year back. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about social emotional wellness, really not enough to give a talk about it. So uh, I just was kind of stewing on how I could approach it in a unique kind of way. And went back to my English teaching days and said, you know, Shakespeare is a wealth of knowledge. Maybe there's something there that I can hang on to that would be interesting and immediately went to Macbeth um, because he breaks every rule of what you do in order to be socially and emotionally well um, adjusted. So I did the talk focusing mostly on Macbeth and I touched on Merchant of Venice and Hamlet And um, the talk went very well. People seemed to like it. And the editor of the um, uh, School Administrator magazine, which is published by the American Association of School Administrators, saw the title of my talk in the program and asked me to write a 600-word article for one of the magazines. So... I did. And a couple days after it was published in June of 2022, I got an email from this gentleman who said to me, I saw your article and I'd like to help you turn it into a book. And I thought, sure, I'll write a book and write you a check for $10,000 and I'll have a book. So I forwarded the email to my friend over at AASA and said, so is this legit? And he said, you should call this man. It's legit. He's from Roman and Littlefield. And um, so I did. And um, about three weeks later, I sent him a 
proposal for the book. And literally the day after I sent it, he sent me a contract. So um, that was July of 2022. And my deadline was December 31st of 2022, which I missed. (laughs) (laughs) But still, it's like serendipity. I talked to so many people who have written a book and cannot find a publisher. And here it was just this series of events, but it seems to me it's not as accidental as it seems when you describe it, because I went and looked up the first interview I did with you, which was uh, July of 2010. And in that interview, you described yourself as someone who always loved to read. And you said, yeah, you said being around young people and sharing your love for literature and your first teaching job was like your anchor and that you were a big fan of Shakespeare. (laughs) And in that same interview, you said the business of schools is very complex There's an emotional component to it. We're serving people's children. We're affecting our world in many ways. People have strong feelings about school. It's not effective to have one person knowing what is best. You need to make decisions that match the values of the community. You can't make a decision in a vacuum. And so many of those threads, as I read your book, (laughs) so many of those threads are woven through. So even though you wrote it in a year, it's like you had a lifetime of threads that you were spinning together. Um, So just tell us a little about... um, One of my favorite things at the start of the book, you have an introduction, and usually I just kind of glance over those because, you know, they're a list of people. But you made it so personal. Tell us how um, your family played into your writing this book. Well, they were both huge. Um, Both my husband and my son played a huge part in it. And I will um, say this, that my husband was so angry at me when I had a contract within 24 hours of submitting a proposal. Cause you know, he's a writer too. And he has been down the road of trying to find someone who will publish. So he was thoroughly annoyed with me. Um, but Tim played a huge role in helping with the book because um, he was my copy editor. He, once I finished a chapter, he, he would read them and give me feedback and, you know, ask questions and, you fix my typos and do all of those kinds of things. Um, and he did a great job. I mean, after I submitted the proposal and, um, you know, got the proofs back from the publisher, I mean, I think I only had six or seven things I had to change in the entire book. It took me less than an hour to, to do it. Um, but my favorite part of all of this um, really was how my writing seemed to pique the interest of my teenage son. Ben's now 16. He was 15 at the time. Um, And I would spend many a Saturday afternoon, um, you know, with the door shut and he would tentatively knock on the door. Mom, can I come in? And I'm always going to say yes. So he would come in and ask me to read a paragraph or two and you know, he would critique the word choice or say, oh, that that was good. Or where's this going next? 
and hang out with me for 20 minutes and then go off and do his other thing. And, you know, I suppose I could have viewed it as an interruption, but I did not. It was just, you know, precious moments. Um, so, you know, the book really was um, an unexpected vehicle to pull together a lot of disparate parts of my life. Um, you know, I reflected on being a student, um, a teacher, a school leader, you know, a wife, a mother, you know, and then this part-time writer in between things. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I love the way you just describe that now, because, of course, the first book, your first chapter is Romeo and Juliet, yeah. who are about the age your son Ben was when yeah. he was knocking on your door. And one <laughs> of your, you say in your book that a lot of these plays act like cautionary tales for school leaders. And of course, you make the point with Romeo and Juliet that the adults in that play were not attuned <laughs> when someone was knocking at the door. They did not open it and listen, and it had a very bad outcome. But tell us um, about the structure of each chapter, because I felt like, yes, you are really a school teacher, because <laughs> you bring the reader in with a quote from the play, and well, you you tell us how each chapter is um, set up and how why you decided to do it that way. Well, um, a couple things. First of all, I'll, I'll go back to talk about why I picked these five plays because there's thirty something plays, um, and part of the reason why I picked them was for a certain poetic justice. You know, these are plays that people like me make kids read in school and they may or may not enjoy it. Um, but one of the reasons why I structured the chapters the way I did was because I took a lot of ribbing from some of my superintendent colleagues when I did my talk, like, oh my God, you're not going to talk about Shakespeare, are you? You know, I didn't even want to read that when I was in school and I never understood it. And so I wanted to... Um, dispel the uh the loftiness if you would if you will of what Shakespeare is all about because you know once you get past the challenge of the Elizabethan language these are just really good stories about um very human people with all kinds of flaws and and but also positive traits and they're great stories. They're just really good stories. So I wanted people to, um, you know, get a couple pages with just what's the story here. Um, and then I tried to pick a quote that would kind of summarize the gist of why this particular story would matter for people who are trying to lead schools and districts. And it, it seemed to work. Um, ironically, I was texting with one of my brothers this morning. I, I admit, he lives down in North Carolina with his wife and family. And uh, he said, well, I'm reading your book. He said, I have to tell you, I never did read Shakespeare, but I'm doing OK with it. And I said, OK, then you're my test case. <laughs> well, I'm somebody that just immersed myself in Shakespeare. It was my dissertation for my Ph.D. And it was 
what I lived for for a number of years, and it works for those people too. Oh, good. <laughs> it works for a whole spectrum of people. Um, but what I liked about what you did and that summary at the start was a setup for how you were going to explore um, kind of the modern interpretation of what it means. And to me, it's a reflection of Shakespeare's genius because like you'll write, I'm just trying to think with like, say the Romeo and Juliet thing, you'll um, quote a modern, uh, I can't think of his name. Isn't that awful? Let me just pull it up in my, I have notes and notes and notes on so many things here. I can't even find, um, you know, you take a modern reading of social emotional growth in teenage brains. Oh, the and Lawrence Seinfeld work? Yes, thank you. Okay, That's yeah. the name I'm looking for. And of course it works because Shakespeare observed human beings in all of their facets and recorded them so meticulously that you know, centuries later, when we have the so-called science to explain it, it all works. So yeah. I just love the way you did that. You like layered in what was the literature and you pulled out what a modern audience could get from it. And then being a school teacher, <laughs> you then highlight the major points with questions and go on and have discussion questions for people, which even if even if you're not reading it with a group of academics, you can just discuss those at the dinner table with your family. I just yeah. it it makes it makes the reader an active participant. And I just think that's wonderful. So who who do you envision reading this book? Well, I think I, it's written for uh, other school leaders and those who aspire to be. I I don't know where in there I may have mentioned, but I have spent most of my career as a school district leader being very committed to like helping the next generation become leaders. You know, I've worked as a um, in the superintendent development program, which is a graduate program at SUNY Oswego. I've done many, many workshops for the Council of School Superintendents, both for you know, new superintendents and those who are contemplating it. Um, I just feel that the the job of leadership is um, just so very important to create the environment where students can flourish. And I I feel like just doing the coursework associated with getting a certificate is um, certainly necessary, but nowhere near sufficient to be able to kind of live the life of a school or district leader. It's it's not a nine to five job. It's the kind of thing that you're immersed in really 24 seven with breaks here and there. So how do we um, prepare people to know what the work really is? It's like, you know, people say, oh, I want to be a superintendent. I'm like, well, do you know what they do? <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, 
you know, it's maybe a little bit more vis vis visual or visible what building principals do because of the nature of their role. But, you know, I'm convinced that people have, I mean, they see you sitting at a board table or giving a speech or, you know, calling a snow day. And, um, you know, that's the very tip of the iceberg. I know I've had people say to me like, oh my gosh, Marie, board meetings, you know, they're so boring, nothing happens. And I'm like, you have no idea how much effort goes into having a smoothly run, efficient, effective um, board of education meeting, the, the planning, the homework, the, the prep, you know, so much goes into it behind the scenes or in preparation for it. And that's really true of every single aspect of the work that we do, whether it's, you know, putting a budget up before the voters or having our voters consider a capital project or creating a new course. I mean, we, we see the, the moment when it's enacted, but don't see the days and hours uh, weeks and months of all that has to happen before that becomes real. So I'm very committed to helping prepare the next generation so they understand that there's a lot that goes into it that is not necessarily visible. Well, I love that last analogy. I don't think that was in your book, this idea how it's like a play. There's the moment of enactment, there's the moment that the audience sees, but then there's all this work literally behind the scenes. <laughs> but as you were and still are, it seems like you're constantly growing as a leader, becoming a leader. What Did you all along rely on this foundation you had, this love of Shakespeare? Like you use Macbeth as kind of the anti-leader. Right. Mean, is that something that like you had in your mind at mo moments that have been difficult for you as a leader in Gilderland? Are there things that you drew on? I mean, before you put them into this book, um, that you were aware of drawing on that background as someone who read and taught and loved Shakespeare? Well, I, I don't know that I was necessarily conscious of it um but um you know i think after spending so much time as a person involved with literature and liking to read and reflecting on literature i just think it was maybe um kind of baked in in some ways and this project helped me make it you know you know bring it to for fruition for others to see, you know, probably of all of the lines of Shakespeare that I have gone back to most, um, and it's an ironic line, but it's from Hamlet, you know, and it's when Polonius says to Laertes, you know, to thine own self be true, um, you know, and there's lots of ways to think about that, but I've and I was brought up thinking in the literal way of that about being honest and acting with integrity, which were values that I got from my, you know, parents, neither of whom 
went to college and my father never even went to high school. Um, but, you know, I was brought up with that message of no matter what you do, you must be honest. You must um, stay true to your values. You must work as hard as you possibly can and always do your very best. So to me, that translated into this, you know, lovely line from Shakespeare. So that has been my, you know, my kind of guiding principle as a human being for, you know, a lot of years now. So I, I just think I had a, you know, this body of work in all of the complexities of how Shakespeare is able to capture the human condition and the human spirit. It's just, you know, it just spoke to me and, you know, it came as a kind of a revelation that the story I told you at the beginning of this, like, well, I have to talk about this topic and I don't even know how to begin. So I went back to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people say rely on the Bible that way or the Koran or, but yes. to have you <laughs> relying on Shakespeare, where do you think this intellectual hunger or, um, ability to lead came from, as you were describing, you said neither your parents went to college, your father didn't finish high school. What, what in you led you to be where you are? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I write about a couple teachers that I had early in my life. Um, one is a woman by name of Patricia Dawes, who was my English teacher in grades five, six, seven, and eight. I went to a little tiny Catholic school in Clinton, New York. And, um, you know, she was the epitome of the English teacher who wove together the power of reading and writing. And I, I spent four years in my early life or she asked us to read a lot and write a lot. And I, I did, and it, it resonated with me. And then I had a high school teacher and I, I've been trying to track her down. I'm not sure that I have who I had um, for AP English. Um, and I was very quiet in high school and I don't even think she will remember me. It was a long time ago, but she would, um, force us as thinkers to get beyond just the words on the page. Like I can re remember reading poems and she would say, well, what's this about? And, you know, people would say, you know, it's about a white chicken. If you know, <laughs> it's not about a white chicken, you know, what the E.E. E. Cummings poem I'm thinking of. So she just pushed us, pushed us, pushed us to, think in more literary ways, you know, beyond the write the text. And somehow that just resonated with me. Um, you know, I was a music major as an undergraduate um, at Temple University. Um, I played the clarinet and studied with the principal clarinetist of the Philadelphia Orchestra for a year, um, but I just wasn't good enough ultimately. So I ended up changing my major to English. Um, and, and, you know, then when you spend 
four years of your life doing nothing but reading books and poetry and plays and writing about them, it, you get steeped in all of the, just the thinking processes that go along with that. So I, you know, I never wanted to be anything other than, I don't even know what I wanted to be, but I never aspired <laughs> to be a superintendent, believe me. I, I loved being a high school English teacher. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, if I were 30 plus years younger, I, I would do it again. It was just, I loved it. So what about your future? I know I just interviewed your husband, who's retiring from being at the helm of the Gilderland yeah. Library, and he seems very set on writing. You know, he's um, going to do this poem a day, and he says, writers write. Do you, I'm hoping you're not retiring soon from the Gilderland <laughs> schools, but do you have thoughts about what's going to happen next in your life? Well, I'm not retiring soon, so um, I, I've i been, you know, eligible to, I suppose, for a while now. I'm just not ready to walk away. I enjoy my work most of the time. Um, um, you know, I know I'm, I'm going to be co-teaching a course this spring semester um, in the doctoral program, leadership program over at SAGE with Lynn Wells. So I, I think over time, I will slowly transition from, you know, doing what I'm doing full time to more of a teaching role. I don't know when all that will happen, but I'm got my toe in the water right now. Um, you know, I don't know about writing more. Um, I guess if a really good idea came along and you know, I found some spare time, I would, I would do it. It was very hard to find spare time to work on this project. I, I will say that. So I, I don't really have a grand plan ahead. Um, but I, I am a worker by nature. I don't think I can be a person who retires and just hangs around the house. And as much as I love to garden, I don't think that would do it for me for long. So I, I'm really not sure, which is probably why I'm not ready to retire. Well, I think the Gilderland schools are lucky you're not ready to retire. Oh, very but before our half hour runs out, we should just kind of run through, if you would, um, you know, you mentioned the five plays. And are there certain points that seem to you to shine brightest or most important for someone who's listening and kind of thinking, okay, I'm not a school reader, a school leader. Am I going to spend my time to read this book? I would argue that they should because it's useful if you're a parent or even a grandparent. It's useful if you're just dealing with a leadership role. But do you have yourself among these plays or among the the modern lessons you drew out of them, what stands out is among the most important? Um, a few, yes. Um, first of all, I would say that anybody who ever has to make tough decisions in any role in their life could find some value in this book because ultimately that's what leaders do. They, they make decisions or are on behalf of others, whether it's on their, their family or their business or their school or their 
legislative district or whatever it is. Um, so I really, I've really taken with Hamlet in the whole notion of um, being able to follow through on your purpose. That whole play is about him knowing what his purpose is and not being able to act. So I feel like knowing one's purpose in whatever role they have, like what is it that you are trying to accomplish? If I think when you know that, it gives you the courage and the motivation to take the actions that you need to take in order to fulfill that pur purpose. And that lesson is, transcends any role there may be in life. Um, the other thing that resonates very much with me right now is um, The Merchant of Venice and how it's the only comedy that I write about but there's that dark side of this comedy with the way that um, Shylock the Jew is other, othered in this play. Um, and I think because of the times we live in and the strong feelings that people can have about fitting in and belonging and being seen and heard and affirmed, I just think that's an area where we all need to work right now. So um, that's another area of the book that I think um, is important for for kind of where we are as a as a culture and a in a in a people. And it's part of my strong commitment to the work we're doing in Gilder Gilderland around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, which believe me. I feel is the most meaningful work I've done in the district in my, I don't know what, 13 years. Um, and we're a work in progress for sure in much to be done. Um, but I, I just think that that is really key and critical right now. Yeah, that play has always troubled me. Um, certainly, you're right. It's a comedy as to its structure. It's got the repeating arcs instead of the one single arc of, you know, death and tragedy. It's got the marriages. But as you call it, this dark side where the so-called happy ending is everybody converting to Christianity just doesn't, doesn't really ring true. And so... Um, I think it's interesting you put it in terms of how Shylock is othered because that does seem to be um, a current problem that we face. And I guess I was going to also ask when you said with Hamlet, um, this lesson of following through on your purpose, I was going to ask, what do you see as your purpose as the leader of the Gilderland schools, what you, you say, once you define that purpose, then you have the courage to act. What, how do you, how do you see your purpose? Well, I, I mean, I don't want this to sound canned in any way, but I do feel our purpose is the mission that we talk about all the time that, you know, I've, we have a lovely statement, but I really have, Paired it down to the notion of, you know, making sure that 
all kids are, are ready, are future ready, all kids future ready. But I, I really have stopped saying all kids in order to change it to each and every. I think that's a really important distinction. Because when you say all kids, you can kind of like lump everybody together in this group of 5,000 students who walk through our doors every day. But when you define it as each and every, you begin to see the individual needs and gifts and idiosyncrasies and, you know, all the things that make each child unique. Um, and I think if, if we are able to do that and, and really make them ready for the, their tomorrow, that's the job. That's the job. <laughs> well... <laughs> Best of luck with that job. Yeah, that is really. a huge, huge job. Our time is out. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I don't know that I do other than um, I just appreciate this opportunity to talk about this little project. Um, I guess I would say if there are any young people listening, uh my biggest takeaway from this, from a life experience, is that you know you should always say yes to opportunities. You know, if I if I turn down the opportunity to do that ten minute talk at the conference, um, I never this never would have happened. It just never would have happened. So, even though it's inconvenient or you don't have time or whatever, whatever, it, when someone gives you an opportunity, say yes, because you never know where it'll lead. I love that advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Wiles. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. 